0: When it comes to the notion of the final judgment or the end times, the typical human response, especially given our fallen nature, is to be afraid, to shake in our boots, to quake in fear, which kind of begs the question, though, is that actually appropriate, right? So even though that is actually the natural and typical human response against the reality of the final judgment, the end times, is God actually calling us to respond in that particular way? Well, perhaps this suggests that the Lord actually calls us to not be afraid, and we find this specifically in the Gospel of Luke chapter 12. So certainly in the context of this particular Gospel, the Lord obviously reminds us to be ready, to be alert, mindful of the fact that the Lord will come to judge the living and the dead, right? So we're called to exercise responsibility in terms of our actions, particularly with regards to the moral life. But at the same time, he urges us to not be afraid. He commands us, actually, to not be afraid. And on top of that, he invites us to build our lives around service and around acts of love, as indicated by this invitation to sell our possessions and to give alms to the poor. And then to sort of drive the point home, he tells this really famous but often I would suggest a misunderstood parable, the parable of the faithful servants. So with regards to this particular parable, it actually revolves around two slaves or two servants. One guy is described as being faithful and prudent, and the other guy, not so much. So with regards to this word, which is rendered here as faithful, sometimes it's translated as dependable, and sometimes it's translated as trustworthy. In any case, regardless of how you translate this particular word, the main thing for us to notice for our purposes today is that this particular word in the original Greek has the same root as the Greek noun for faith and the Greek verb, which means to believe. And so, given all that, the takeaway message here is that with regards to this first servant or slave, certainly he is trustworthy, certainly he is dependable, certainly he is faithful, but not in an arm's length sort of way, right? So he's not like a dog who simply obeys his master in a blind sort of way. No, he is trustworthy and faithful and dependable because he believes in his master. He trusts and believes that his master is good, that he's a man of integrity, that his word and his promises can be trusted. Especially when he says to the servant, this is what you're supposed to do, and perhaps more to the point, this is how you're meant to find life, as opposed to some competing path proposed to you by the world. Okay, but that brings us to the second word, which is used to describe this first servant or slave. And again, that word is actually prudent. Now, to be honest, the word prudence or simply being prudent, it's not the best translation, because obviously in the English, it conveys more of a passive approach. So the idea here is that because I'm being prudent, I maybe hold back, and I don't act right away because of issues of timing or circumstance or whatever. But you know, in contrast, if we look at the word in the original Greek, it conveys something which is a little more active as opposed to being passive. And so given all that, perhaps a more appropriate translation would be to say that the first servant was actually wise or thoughtful. In any case, regardless of whether or not we translate this word as prudence, wise, or thoughtful, the main thing for us to notice here is that this word has the same roots as a Greek word for heart. And funny enough, in the ancient world, the heart wasn't simply seen as being the source of all emotion and passion, but on top of that it was seen as being the core of the human person himself or herself. It was seen as being a place from which all important decisions were actually made. So given all that, the net effect of all these different translation issues, if you will, is to basically suggest that the first servant or the first slave is fully committed to doing what the master wants him to do, Certainly because he trusts in him, certainly because he believes in him, but again, more to the point, not simply on a head level, but on a heart level. As a result of which the gospel says that this first slave gives to his fellow servants the appropriate amount of food at the appropriate time. In other words, because he's such a firm believer in his master and what his master is all about, he is therefore able to make this habitual and sincere gift of himself to his fellow slaves. Mindful of the fact that he's not better than his fellow slaves, and mindful of the fact that he's simply acting in a stance of stewardship, simply giving to these people that which he has freely received. Okay, but that brings us, of course, to the second servant, or the second slave. And obviously, in contrast to the first slave, the second guy is not faithful, and he's not prudent. But instead, what we hear is that he beats his fellow slaves, and he goes forth to eat and drink and otherwise get drunk. Now in light of everything we've just said about the first servant or the first slave, perhaps we might now have some insight as to what the real problem is when it comes to the second guy. Because if you read between the lines, basically the main problem with regards to the second guy is not so much his bad behavior, although his behavior is certainly symptomatic of something, but rather his underlying problem is that actually he doesn't really trust in his master. He doesn't really believe that his master is good. And perhaps more to the point, he doesn't really believe when his master says, that the way to find life, the way to find the abundance of life that you're looking for, is to make a habitual and sincere gift of yourself out of love, love for God and love for other people. And of course, because this guy lacks a fundamental sense of trust and faith and belief in his master, he seeks to find life in other ways, apart from the way of the gift of oneself. And so he tries to go the way of vanity and pride, trying to elevate himself above his fellow slaves, trying to beat his fellow slaves, And on top of that, he tries to find life by way of sensuality, you know, hence the image of, again, eating, drinking, and getting drunk. In any case, this takes us to the climax, if you will, of the story, where the servants or slaves are either rewarded or actually punished severely. Now, with regards to the first servant, who again is faithful and prudent, the master says to him, look, now I will put you in charge of all my possessions. Now on the face of it, that might sound like kind of a strange reward, but I I think it's actually a subtle allusion to the parable of the prodigal son, which of course you find in the Gospel of Luke chapter 15. So basically in the context of the prodigal son story, there's this father who has two sons, one's younger and one's older. The younger one goes to the father and says, give me the share of the property owed unto me, which he receives and subsequently loses in loose living, prostitutes and whatnot. Then he comes home, as received with great mercy and compassion by his father. But then his brother hears about this and he's really upset, right? And so basically he says to his father, look, I've slaved for you all these years and you've never given me my friends, even a young goat, to celebrate. But now the son of yours has come back and you've killed the fatted calf uh, to give to him and and to celebrate with the general populace. And so he refuses to go into the party. In response to which the father says "What? well, certainly he invites his elder son to join the party and urges him to recognize this is meant to be a cause of great celebration, the return of my son and your brother. But before that, he says something really interesting. So what he says is, "'Son, you are always with me, and more to the point, "'all that is mine is yours.'" So we in shades of today's gospel, right? "'I will give you now a share in my possessions.'" And you see, the point that's being made in both these different stories is that the reward for living a good life, the reward for living a life of love, where you habitually, again, give a sincere gift of yourself to God and other people, is not something like a goat, or even a whole collection of goats. The reward is built into the life itself. Because the reality is I want to make a firm decision to build my life around the pursuit of love, well that I'm actually sharing in God's blessed life. Because who is God at the end of the day? God is love itself. You see, hold that thought for a sec and turn now to the second servant or the second slave and realize what his punishment actually is. His punishment is that he's torn to pieces. Now, when you hear that, it sounds like really terrifying and harsh, right? But you got to realize it's, it's kind of a metaphor in a certain sense. And more to the point, I think, again, it's a subtle allusion to the parable of the prodigal son. And so, again, go back to the very beginning of that story, right? And so, in the immediate aftermath of having received, again, the share of the property owned to him, what happens to the younger son? What we hear is that he loses his share of the property in dissolute living, prostitutes and whatnot, right? But what's interesting is that in the original Greek, what we hear actually is that his essence is dissipated. And so the moment he separates himself from God, who is the principle of life itself, his essence is dissipated. In other words, he's torn to pieces. And so given all that, the takeaway message, if you will, is that if you choose to build your life not so much around love, but rather around things like, again, vanity, pride, and sensuality, the punishment is not so much some external thing as opposed to something built into that life. Because the punishment is that you won't be happy. And the reason why you won't be happy is because, yeah, you're separated from God, who is the principle of life itself, but also because you're not living a life of perfect integrity. And if there's something that our hearts long for, is to live a life of perfect integrity. And when you don't have that, what does it feel like? It feels like your essence is dissipated, and it feels like you've been cut to pieces. So basically, if you pull all this different stuff together, certainly the Lord is affirming the reality of the final judgment and the end times, which makes sense, right? Our choices have meaning, our decisions have meaning, our lives have meaning, and we wouldn't have it any other way, to be honest. But on top of that, and kind of more to the point, the Lord urges us to not be afraid, to not be afraid, and and to trust and believe that if we actually focus on becoming persons of love, everything will be fine, right? Because at the end of the day, that's the end goal. Because if we truly become persons of love, persons of sacrificial love, where we build our lives again around this habitual and sincere gift of ourselves, we'll actually become like God. God who again is love itself. And may God bless you all.